0: Uncommon sense advice on your work life, your personal life, and God knows what else. Welcome to How to Do Life with Dr. Marty Nemco. Hi, I'm Marty Nemco. I've been on a tear these last year or two, uh, writing these short, short stories, uh, which I could say, uh, stories to uh, sit on the pot with, because they take just two or three minutes to read. and. As we approach Valentine's Day, or maybe by the time this thing is posted, it will be Valentine's Day. I've picked out uh, a dozen stories, the first three of which are Valentine's Day themed. And because it can be sappy, only the first of the three of these Valentine's Day romantic uh, short-short stories is uh, sappy. The other two are definitely not. And then I have just nine other short-short stories. I reviewed the last 50 I wrote and picked out uh, maybe, I don't know, about nine more that I, uh, I thought... You might particularly enjoy so anyway this first one the sappy one is called ikebana circle ikebana is the japanese art of flower arranging it integrates earth at the bottom human in the middle and sky at the top and often it is framed by a circle lily's husband died at a good age 86 and after the appropriate period of mourning she decided that while still able she would have an adventure after all her whole adult life she was an Ikebana flower arranger a life beautiful but free of adventure so Lily took her modest inheritance and flew to San Francisco where she knew a cafe waitress who had immigrated from her town and agreed to sponsor Lily guaranteeing her a job Lily started as a dishwasher and of course didn't like it as much as Ikebana but accepted that she needed to start somewhere and soon She was promoted to busser, setting tables, pouring coffee, clearing tables. At night, Lily made Ikebana, which she sold to restaurants and hotels. She did it not just for the money, although she could certainly use it with the exorbitant cost of living, even in the Bay Area's so-called bad areas, but it was also spiritually rewarding. Often, Lily would bring an Ikebana to the cafe and put it on the table of a customer she liked. Her favorite was an old quiet man, simply dressed. When she put the Ichabon on his table for the third time, he asked if she would like to take a walk with him sometime. Nervous, she just mumbled, thank you, and scurried off with her coffee pot. But the next time he came in, she said, I would be honored to walk with you. Soon, he invited her to his modest home. But after she agreed to move in with him, he said that he was a retired venture capitalist. She didn't know what that was, so he explained that his job was to find money for tiny businesses that promised to make the world better. They enjoyed the early December of their years, indeed honestly loved each other, even though sex for them could not go beyond kissing, cuddling, and fondling. And then he got Parkinson's. She not only didn't resent caring for him, she loved it, until the end, which wasn't as pleasant as her husband's, who had died peacefully in his sleep. He left all his $26 million to her. She returned to Japan to live in her simple apartment and spent the rest of her life driving into the country giving rural high school computer teachers an ikibana. Inside its circle was a sky represented by a cherry blossom branch, a person by shiny leaves, and on its earth, 25 million yen, roughly $200,000. All she said to the teachers was, Give it to a student who could make the world better. Anyway, that short, short story, I think appropriate for Valentine's Day, is Ikebana Circle. The next of the romance-themed or relationship-themed short, short stories, this one not quite as short and definitely not as sappy, is something called the Hillcrest Widows Club. The four women of the Hillcrest Widows Club met every Thursday morning at 9 in the corner of a quiet coffee shop. Their statements about their deceased husbands started politely. For example, Mary said, Yes, it's difficult, but I'm trying to muddle through. But slowly their fear of being seen as cold faded. But what really opened things up was when Zoe said, Honestly, I'm relieved to be rid of that ball and chain. Brittany then felt free to pile on. Don't we like talking with each other rather than with men? We care more about family, feelings, and okay fashion. The successful men mainly want to talk about their work. The unsuccessful ones about sports. Further emboldened, Zoe said, and they just care about getting in and out, assuming they can get it up, which for the last decade my husband at least couldn't. And I had to pretend it was okay. Two of the other women nodded. That encouraged Zoe to admit that she had fantasies about lesbian sex. Okay, more than fantasies. Before long, they decided they needed more privacy, so they met in Zoe's plush living room. Mary asked, how could you afford this? Zoe replied, my husband was a lawyer who had one client, but a great one, the Environmental Protection Agency. After a glass of wine and or a bong hit, Zoe moved close to Willow, the member who seemed most likely to be willing to kiss. Zoe looked her in the eye, and when Willow didn't avert, Zoe kissed her as the others watched wide-eyed would Willow pull back on the contrary she sighed in pleasure but Zoe sensed it was too fast not just for Willow but for the others so Zoe pulled back and asked if someone would like another hit or a glass of wine but three Zoe meetings later they all and I mean all had a very cuddly experience but after Mary whispered something that shocked the others I love our Widows Club but every so often I wonder are men so bad that we're fine with bashing them? We wouldn't criticize women, let alone BIPOX. If I did, I'd get to three Cs. Censure, censor, or cancel. Atop that, in so many news shows, and especially movies, TV shows, and novels, some spunky smart woman usually triumphs over an evil or clueless guy. And when women have the deficit, say, we're so-called underrepresented in science, there's massive redress. And yes reverse discrimination I know a number of women who got jobs over more competent harder-working guys and okay so did I yet when men have the ultimate deficit they live five years shorter than women their last decade in worse health and there are 4.4 widows for every widower all we see is another run for breast cancer over the next few meetings the others began to shun Mary it was subtle a little less eye contact a little more interrupting and unlike before, no one asked her to get together between meetings. Sad at being ostracized, Mary figured, it's not that big a deal to play the game. She even told anti-male jokes. What do you call a man with a half a brain? Gifted. What's the difference between government bonds and men? Bonds mature. What's the difference between a man and a catfish? One is a bottom-feeding scumsucker, and the other is a fish. And soon, Mary was back in the fold. Anyway, that's, that's called the Hillcrest uh, Widows Club. The next story, uh, also uh, kind of a romantic theme, but definitely not sappy, the opposite. This one is called Kansas to Vegas. In the Salina, Kansas church I grew up in, filled with well-wishers, my dad, Pastor Peter, was at the altar, performing the most important wedding ceremony of his life, mine. With tears in his eyes, he whispered, Mary... Do you take Travis to be your lawfully wedded husband in sickness and in health? For richer, for poorer, until death? Before he could even say, do us part, I ran out, ripped the just married sign off the back of our car, pulled Travis's suitcase out, left it on the sidewalk, and drove off. I had no idea where I was headed. I just knew I had to get away from ordinary Kansas life, especially daughter of Kansas preacher's ordinary life. I got on the interstate and drove west except for pit stops I drove straight through the Oklahoma panhandle North Texas and into New Mexico where I saw a sign that felt like a sign Albuquerque 212 Phoenix 520 Las Vegas 777 777 and because Vegas is the opposite of ordinary Kansas I had found my destination what was I going to do there I have no skills and Salina I was just a waitress On arriving in Vegas, I knew I needed clothes and didn't want to run out of money. So my first stop was a Salvation Army store. I was so nervous. So many things going through my mind that I forgot I was still in my wedding dress. I only realized it when people started laughing at me. So I grabbed the first dress that it all called to me, of all things, a gold sequin cocktail dress. Short, too short, and scoop neck. Lots of cleavage would show. Too much. But it sure is different than Kansas. Pure Vegas. And for $5, I wasn't going to take the time to try it on. I wanted out of there now. I tried it on in the car and felt embarrassed that I loved it. It was a sign of my new life, the opposite of Salina. I didn't expect to have to be spending much of my own money on my honeymoon, so I checked into a cheap hotel in a neighborhood I call Dicey, perfect for Vegas. To avoid being seen in sequence, I raced up to my room. I looked at myself in the mirror and thought, next stop, Walmart, to get normal clothes. Then I asked myself, what am I going to do to make money? More waitressing? Tired of that. I'm here to do something new. Seeing my cleavage in the mirror, I laughed. Hooker? Never. But I do look like a cocktail waitress, maybe at one of those famous Vegas hotels. So after a good night's sleep, which I sure needed, I went to the fancy hotels I had heard of, Wynn's, the Venetian, and MGM Grand. All three came up snake eyes, or is it craps? I don't know, gambling. I asked why they turned me down. Is it my dress? No, they loved my get-up, but wanted to hire someone who had already been a cocktail waitress in Vegas. They told me to try the Sahara, Circus Circus, and even the best Western, but I got the same answer and got scared. Driving back to my hotel in its dicey neighborhood, I passed Winner's Motel and Casino. Two of the letters in the neon sign were out. I thought, well, maybe you gotta start somewhere. Looking up and down my dress, the manager hired me. I hated the job. The non-stop noise of the slot machines and the players whose politeness sometimes faded into rudeness when they got past their second drink. One guy said, Baby, you probably make 15 bucks an hour. How'd you like 200? Come to my room and I'll show you how. I turned him down with a polite thank you, but I don't do that. But after my shift back in my room, I started thinking. After all, my fiancé and yeah, other guys said I was hot. And it would pay a whole lot better than a winner's motel and casino. But what would my parents think, especially my father, preacher man? But the next morning, which for me was noon, on my phone, I went to the website of the only brothel I'd ever heard of, the Camaro Ranch. It wanted applications for courtesans. And without thinking about it much, I applied. I figured they'd never hire me. I definitely had no prior experience working in a brothel. That was a question on the application. But the same day, I got a call for an interview. I wore my sequin dress, and they hired me subject to passing a blood test and criminal background check. In the meantime, they gave me a training booklet, including how to do a dick check looking for STDs. Two days later, they called and asked if I'd sign a 14-day contract at $1,000 a day. Live in. I signed, but soon broke the contract. It was the very first guy. I didn't get beyond the first minutes of warm-em-up conversation when I cried, I can't do this and as i did at the altar i ran out and drove back to salina as soon as i got home my parents cried i cried and of course i apologized next i saw travis and swore in a stack of bibles that i'd never run away again but he said i can't count on you mary no as i'm writing this i'm back to waitressing and i'm wondering whether like my fellow cans and dorothy and the wizard of oz maybe there really is no place like home i'm not sure Okay, so that uh, story, uh, romance theme but definitely not sappy, is called Kansas to Vegas. The rest of these stories are just stories I, I've picked out of the large collection I have that I like. This one is called Fantasy Traffic School. I got stopped by the highway patrol. Do you know how fast you were going? No, sir. You were doing 77 and a 65. I'll give you a break. I'll write you up for a 75 and a 65. I thought you should be nominated for sainthood. But instead, I just asked, uh, how much will it be? You'll be notified by mail. I put my head down inside. It came in the mail all right. $515. Or, if I want to go to traffic school, a mere 380 plus the traffic school's $99 fee. That's almost 500 bucks, but then it doesn't go on your record, so my insurance won't go up. I picked carload of last traffic school, and I'm glad I did. I didn't think it would be a good choice. I showed up, and there were a couple dozen other violators, and an instructor who looked like he'd rather have a root canal. He mumbled, "Okay, six hours and forty-five minutes. You'll get your certificate. Let's get started." A car must be how many feet behind a stopped school bus? An eager beaver raised her hand. Twenty feet. The instructor made a buzzer noise, like on a TV quiz show. <laughs> <laughs> and said far enough that you can't hear the kids farting just kidding you're right 20 feet how does a cop know you've run a stop sign we were quick learners from the eager beaver's experience and none of us raised our hand and he said you've run a stop sign if you jog past it only one person even bothered to groan (laughs) the instructor said just kidding the cop sees if your wheels have completely stopped turning why shouldn't you speed 'Cause you might get caught 500 bucks ka-chang seriously you know why it's wrong to speed after 45 minutes of this he said let's take our first break he seemed the most eager one to get out of the classroom after a minute of commiseration with my fellow lawbreakers I too wanted out of the stuffy room so I wandered outside instead of hanging out with some fellow scholars in front of the building I moped to the back It's fun to see what we're not supposed to see, usually stuff like used oil from a restaurant or broken crockery from a houseplant store. But this time I struck gold. There was our burnout instructor smoking a joint. Manna from heaven. As soon as he saw me, he flung the joint away. I sauntered over, picked it up, smelled it to confirm, and said, "Mm, You needed a little something to try to make you funny? He said, Please don't tell anyone. I strutted back into the torture chamber, I mean classroom, where most of my fellow students were hanging out, and I told them what I saw. When the instructor returned, he acted like nothing had happened, but I wasn't going to let that happen. I said, so, Mr. Instructor, I understand that you've decided to end the course right now and give us all our certificate of completion. He said, huh? Whereupon I started chanting, weed, 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 cert, cert, cert weed 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 cert 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 and my fellow students joined the chorus the final nail in his coffin was when i said now you don't want me to go to your company and tell them about your weedy weedy stoner break do you like our tickets it would go on the record and that would cost you more than a hike in your insurance from the paper bag on the floor next to his desk the instructor grabbed the stack of certificates slammed it on his desk and swayed out as soon as I got back in my car I patted my certificate and made a point of after checking for cops rolling through a stop sign my wheels definitely were turning ah anyway that's called fantasy traffic school the next story I want to read you is something called story time my son never outgrew his love of my reading to him nor did I It started ordinarily enough from when jerry was a baby i read to him first hop on pop cat in the hat the little engine that could you know the usual hits we particularly loved the carrot seed in that story a little boy planted a carrot seed and everyone in his family said it wouldn't grow but the boy kept watering it and watering it and finally it came up just as a little boy always knew it would my son mainly loved that the boy turned out to be right i tried not altogether successfully To explain that the story was about the wisdom of being persistent when you're confident you're correct then when jerry was seven or eight we read the giving tree and talked about what the story meant my son thought it was save the trees my son was unusually mature so i thought i could give this explanation the story is about life's path from exuberance to disillusionment fatigue and death it also asks what is too much sacrifice and when you give a person a finger, does it make him want an arm? As usual, we ended with a hug and a promise that we would have story time forever. When Jerry was around ten, our favorite was James and the Giant Peach, a welcome break from reality. But the peach, ah yes, the peach was a soft, stealthy traveler, making no noise as it floated along. And several times during that long, silent night ride, High up over the middle of the ocean in the moonlight, James and his friends saw things that no one had ever seen before. When Jerry was 16, our favorite was the lottery, and we discussed how groupthink can make regular people do or at least ignore horrific things, for example, citizens of Nazi Germany, the snitches of Stalinist USSR, or some warrior lemmings today. When Jerry was 20, in a way at college, I'd read aloud over the phone. I particularly remember the secret life of walter mitty walter escapes into fantasy to avoid being suppressed by his strong wife surprisingly that triggered quite an argument jerry insisted on the importance of following your dreams while i made the case for being realistic which made him insist he was going to take big risks that got me more scared and more angry but we got off the phone saying and meaning it that we'll always love each other i'll fast forward as i'm writing this on my deathbed where I am. Jerry just read The Giving Tree again to me and said, Your interpretation 70 years ago was right. The book is about life's path from exuberance to disillusionment, fatigue, and death. And I promise to read to my kids forever. Not a bad capstone to a life of story time. Anyway, that story is called story Time. The next one I want to read to you is Facing the Enemy. In an Afghan forest, I was doing a recon, seeing if the enemy was around, and I saw one guy. His back was to me, so he didn't see me. I crept as close as I could so that, even though I'm no marksman, I couldn't miss. But I stepped on a leaf, and he spun around to see my rifle pointed at his head. I put my finger on the trigger, but through my scope I could see the terror, the resignation, the ordinary humanity in his eyes, so I couldn't pull it. I just yelled, drop your gun! He didn't move then I realized he probably doesn't speak any English so I just motioned with my rifle and he dropped it I kept staring at him should I take him back to camp so we can interrogate him and find out where the rest of his son of a bitch group was I realized that if I did if he didn't talk they'd torture him or even kill him even if he did talk they might kill him but if I let him go he'd probably tell his buddies and my buddies could die while I had the rifle trained on him I motioned him to kick the rifle toward me he did I picked it up and I lowered my rifle He started to cry, and while I'm no crybaby, I got a little teary. He rushed toward me, and I raised my rifle, but he had his arms out like he wanted to hug me, and he did. And I hugged him back. I couldn't take him back to camp. He put his hands together like in prayer, and then waved for me to follow him. Was he trying to get me to go to his army's camp? Then I'd be the one who was interrogated, tortured, and maybe killed. Somehow I didn't think he would do that after I spared his life, so I followed him. Soon we arrived at a cottage in the woods with white smoke coming from the chimney. It would be warm and I sure needed some warmth. He opened the door and I saw a woman about our age. She screamed at what seemed a cross between delight at seeing him and fear of me. I lowered my rifle. She hesitated and then ran into his arms. They hugged and, yeah, cried. He started talking in some Afghani language and then she hugged me and motioned me to sit at the table. She made us a rich soup and warm bread. And then she went outside, I assumed to use an outhouse. I didn't see a bathroom. But next I knew, three soldiers burst through the door, their rifles pointed at my head. But the guy whose life I spared talked to them, and they pointed their rifles toward the door. I plotted out and then ran back to camp. Anyway, that's a, that short story is called Facing the Enemy. Uh, the next one I want to read to you is called A Little Life. Linda turned off her alarm clock, petted her still-sleeping dog Daisy, and crept out of bed. She drank coffee as she dressed. She was embarrassed that she preferred to dress in the librarian stereotype. Today, it was a dark jacket over a light blue blouse and black pants, and yes, sensible shoes. She strolled to the bus. She rarely had to hurry, and arrived at the library at 8.50 in time for the library's 9 o'clock opening. At the reference desk, she was appropriately pleasant, encouraging, and restrained. After work, she had a light dinner. Then, except for Tuesday nights when she had choir rehearsal, She usually carried a hot chocolate, which she liked for dessert, got into a comfortable nightgown and retreated to her bed with Daisy, where she'd read. Or she would knit simple things, a bookmark for co-workers and favorite customers, or fingerless hand warmers for choir members. The church keeps the rooms cool. One evening, Linda got a call. She thought, telemarketers? They're calling later and later. But it wasn't a telemarketer. It was someone claiming to be a producer from American Idol. Linda didn't believe it until he said, member of your choir sent us a video of your solo on Bridge Over Troubled Waters, told us about you, and we're impressed. Actually, all four of us producers think you could win. You're just what we're looking for, a normal, regular person, a librarian, no less, who, when she sings, blows everyone away. You could be the next Susan Boyle, maybe better. Would you like to audition for American Idol? Linda was overwhelmed, took a breath, and thought, even if I somehow were to win, look at Susan Boyle. She had her 15 minutes of fame, and then everyone, had a, everyone wanted a piece of her they dolled her up singing went from pleasure to a business she lost her peace of mind if I remember right she has to go to a mental health clinic then Linda said in her kindest voice I'm sorry but I need to say no the producer replied I know you're expecting to argue with you but to be honest I understand and Linda hung up petted Daisy sipped her hot chocolate and returned to her knitting anyway that short story is called a little life the next one I want to read to you is called An Exploding Balloon. I wanted to make some money, so in the mall, when I saw a sign in the piano store for a salesperson, I went in. The manager scoffed, but you're a teenager. People buying an expensive piano I won't buy from a kid. They'll think I'm cute and I play the piano. Okay, play piano player, play something. I knocked out a few bars of something, and he said, okay, I'll try you out, but I need to control my risk. No salary, only commission. That means you eat only what you kill. Are you going to train me the only training you need is to smile a lot ask why they want a piano be enthusiastic in response show them three pianos more overwhelms them fewer makes them feel they don't have enough choices watch and listen to their reactions if needed remind them of why they want a piano and say my boss has authorized me to give a 20 percent discount today only i could have it delivered tomorrow or saturday either one work for you it was overwhelming But I didn't want to sound like I didn't understand, like I was some dumb teenager. So I just said, "Okay, what do I do now? Call the names on this prospect list. They've been in the store before or on a mailing list we bought of people who clicked on an ad for pianos. When you get bored with that, stand in front of the store and when anyone even glances at you or at a piano in the window, say, How'd you like to try one? Or would you like me to play something for you? Give people two choices, both of which you like, and they'll usually pick one. Oh, and wear a jacket and tie. We have to portray an upscale image. Pianos are expensive. Call after call, all I got was stuff like sorry, or I hate telemarketers, or they hung up without a word. I told the boss that I must be doing something wrong, but he said, nah, that's the real world, kid. You need umpteen nose to get one maybe. You might as well learn that now. Take a break from the call and go outside and pitch him. But I got the same result. Flat expressions as they walked on, sometimes a sneer. And what made me quit? You look whack which is urban slang for ridiculous a jacket and tie go home mama's boy what made that hurt so much was that it was on top of the reaction I usually get from girls in school for example when I say hi the best I get back is usually a flat hi, as she walks on or maybe speeds up I feel like shit treated so unfairly what put me over the edge was when the teachers say white males are privileged I'm not privileged everything I've gotten I've earned everything my parents got they earned and they're far from rich I wanted to say that but when i saw a kid try to argue with the teacher and she shot him down i just held it in but i'm like a balloon that keeps getting filled until it bursts we always have a rat problem in our apartment so we keep an economy sized rat poison around i'm not sure what i did was right so to be safe i'm not going to tell you what i did so i don't cause a copycat at the end of the trial the judge asked if i had anything to say i figured that reverse psychology had the best chance of working so i fake cried i hate myself and i deserve the worst punishment It worked. The judge said something like, I'm moved by your contrition. In this state, I couldn't sentence you to adult prison. You're only 17. But I could send you to the juvenile detention center for three years. But I'll make it two years with possibility of early release for good behavior. I continued the fake agony at the same time I was wondering whether I should learn from the experience and try to pull something without getting caught. Honestly, I'm not sure. In any case, that short story is called... um, an exploding balloon and the next story I'd like to read to you is called a confrontive career coach my parents stress that you give a greater gift by telling people an uncomfortable truth about themselves than if you tell a pleasing lie my parents walk their talk and I'm grateful for it they pulled no punches when I was too long-winded not thorough enough or too argumentative my training to become a career coach stressed the opposite be accepting supportive provide a safe space While I didn't argue with my instructors because I wanted to graduate, their rationale didn't shake my belief in the power of constructive criticism over support. So as a career coach, I made what I believed was the ethical choice, to be direct and sometimes to shake a client from too confident complacency, confrontive. For example, a client was a bored Social Security administrator. The more I learned about him, the more I realized that in his soul he was entrepreneurial. For example, he said he used to be a ticket scalper, And later admitted that he still does it a little i suggested perhaps too bluntly that he needed to sacrifice the security of his ill-suited career as an administrator and become an ethical entrepreneur but not a scummy one i'm sure he inferred that the word scummy referred to him he got angry with me but fast forward a year and he was running a moderately successful online business selling used books that he sources from libraries that are getting rid of excess inventory Another client, a clinical social worker, blabbed on and on about how spirituality-centered she was, including chakras and wicker retreats with naked sage-burning dancing in the woods to banish evil spirits in favor of world peace. She said that for the last two years she's been trying to make a related activity or career, doing healings. She's 33 years old, and I've asked how much she's made net per year. Answer, less than 3000 I said, you have a hobby. Do you want to continue living off your boyfriend's income? Is that spiritual? You need a career, not a religion. She hated me for a session. And then we explored more remunerative and, yes, more conventional ways to do healing. And she decided to enroll in a course using progressive exposure to help people overcome phobias. Then there was the aspiring singer. She sucked. And while I didn't use those words, I did say, you're paying me for candor. Well, sure, Bob Dylan succeeded with a bad singing voice, but you ain't no Bob Dylan. She walked out right then. Indeed, my confrontive approach was poorly received by too many clients, and my practice slowly withered and withered. So one evening after my last client of the day, I reflected and decided I'd be conventional. I'd be a supportive coach. So when an old guy blamed ageism for his career problems, I put duct tape over my mouth. It would have done more good to remind him of his tech lightness and admitted poor learning speed and memory. He said, I have CRS, can't remember shit. But I played Mr. Support. I can imagine how frustrating it must be to be the victim of ageism, blah, blah, blah. When clients wanted to use creative writing to hide their employment failures and gaps, I remained silent and merely helped them write the resume they wanted. My practice rebounded, but I reflected on my new approach and felt it wasn't ethical and was less helpful. But the catch-22 is that too many clients wouldn't tolerate a confrontive career coach. So I decided to close up shop right after I saw the client who I most believe warranted confrontation. Speaking on varnish to you, dear reader, he's unintelligent and lazy but thinks he's smart and that any lack of drive comes from racism, capitalism, his parents, his boss, everything but him. He claims that the one internal cause of his torpor is immutable. I'm depressed. But it's clear that his depression isn't physiological. He has drive for things he finds fun. An appropriate job and work ethic would go a long way to curing his depression. I told him as much. And yes, at the end of our session, he said, this is our last session soon as we got off the Zoom, I deleted my practice's website, tossed out my business cards from my desk and wallet, and unlisted my phone number. I'm now an eligibility worker for the unemployment office. Here I can, and indeed am paid to be confrontive. Having been a career coach, I know the lengths that some people will go to get money. For example, a few clients who had bad track records at work lied and listed their friends or relatives as their boss. Oh, John was a wonderful employee. Now, for example, when a claimant for unemployment says that they contacted the required three employers to try to find work, and I sense it's BS, I say, okay, I'll call them now, and I pick up the phone. Often the um, applicant says something like, "Uh, well, maybe I didn't. I feel good about being a good steward of taxpayer dollars. I'm a career coach who has made a good career change. Anyway, that short, short story is called um, A Confrontive Career Coach, And the next story that I would like to read to you is called um, How the World Ends and Begins Again. Under pressure from the world media, Iran finally elects a more liberal government. To prove it was still tough, it gave more money and weapons to Israel's adjacent enemies, Syria and Lebanon, and to groups committed to destroying Israel, Hezbollah, Islamic Jihad, ISIS-Sinai, Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigade, and Hamas. In an attempt to preempt attacks, Israel fired a fusillade of missiles at all of the above. Iran used that unprovoked attack to solicit military funding and weaponry from Russia and then from China. The U.S. remained committed to brokering a negotiated solution and ruled out military involvement, remembering the lessons of Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan, and Ukraine. But talks quickly broke down when Iran, now well-funded, decided it would do better negotiating from strength, so it bombed Haifa, Israel's port and third-largest city, killing hundreds, mainly port workers. While the European Union remained mostly silent, the U.S. along with the U.K. felt it must act, despite protests from the now-enlarged squad. U.S. and U.K. involvement grew as it became clear that the the Iran-Russia-China triumvirate was emboldened by the West's modest response. It then bombed, with conventional and chemical weapons, Israel's two largest cities, Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. Then, at 3 a.m. on Yom Kippur, the Jews' most solemn holiday, the triumvirate fired a nuclear bomb into the heart of Israel, destroying all of the tiny country's buildings. 90% of its people immediately, and the other 10% would likely soon die from radiation poisoning. At that point, the U.S. and the U.K., with modest support from NATO, launched a retaliatory nuclear strike against the Iran-Russia-China triumvirate. It was supposed to be tactical, only on military targets, but errors resulted in a nuke devastating St. Petersburg, Russia, and another one in Chengdu, China, both population centers. That triggered additional nuclear attacks by both sides, and thus the world ended, essentially. A tattered United Nations met in the basement of the United Nations building. The above-ground part had been destroyed, and it agreed it would restart the world with a one-world, largely socialist government. They agreed that climate change, a long-term but not immediate threat, would be put on the back burner. But almost immediately, a capitalist group decided to splinter, and the former India gave it land. And so, it all began again. In any case, that story is how the world ends and begins again. The next story I want to read to you is called A Piano Lesson. Igor Alexeyev felt guilty sneaking a glance at his shopping list as he played a cherny exercise along with his eight-year-old piano student, Lily. That's me straight your fingers curve your hand good I couldn't care less I was dying for the lesson to be over so I could go out and play meanwhile I gave only a small part of my attention to the stupid scales and most of my brain to other thoughts Mr Alexia's hands are so veiny why are my fingers so fat will mom let me have a mochi Ugh. homework afterwards I'll do it fast I want to play Stardew Valley my nose itches I stopped to scratch it and Mr Alexia sighed but then relaxed when I went right back to playing the journey with fake patience he said plays the notes evenly see how i do it i tried but thought i don't care we did the journey three times finally that was done and i got to play the piece i was on little spring song that was a little better but i was happy when the lesson was over my mother asked how my lesson went i said fine can i have a mochi so that story is called the piano lesson next story i want to read to you is is called would you stop procrastinating for a million dollars because i'm unemployed i'm still living with my grandfather i thought he wouldn't be home for a few hours so even though it was a weekday when i should have been job hunting i was practicing shooting my pistol in the backyard to keep me focused right next to the target paper i had nailed my army marksman medal when my grandfather saw me playing with my pistol instead of job hunting he was angry with me yet again Devin, you're a good tax accountant all you're missing is discipline i tried to help you by pushing you to go to west point you learned accounting there but you didn't learn discipline He paced the backyard and continued, Devin, I've written my will. I have about a million dollars and made you the beneficiary, but I can't feel good about it if you're such a procrastinator. So here's the deal. It's March 2nd. If you can complete my tax return, federal, state, and city, by midnight, April 15th, the tax deadline, the will will stand. If not, I will change it so the million goes to charity. A million was motivating, absolutely, and I worked hard at it. And by April 12th, it was almost done. I'd completed the federal and state returns and just had to polish the city, a few hours of work max. That day, my girlfriend called to say she had just gotten a bonus and wanted to take us to our favorite hideaway for the weekend. Because I had just a few hours of work left on the taxes, I agreed, and we had a great time. When we got back on the night of the 14th, I was exhausted, so I went to sleep and set the alarm for 8 a.m., which would give me more than enough time to get the taxes done by midnight. When I woke up, I got coffee, went right to the computer, opened the software and all the files, the federal the state and the city were empty gone I couldn't stop shrieking oh my God oh my God oh my God my grandfather rushed in and I explained what happened he fumed how could you be so irresponsible didn't you make a backup I hadn't I didn't even know how to make one with tax software I mean I'd never lost any file in my entire life he said he was sorry but the million's going to be going to charity in agony I went to my girlfriend's apartment she cried too I assumed in sympathy but she explained remember that bonus I told you I got well it came from your grandfather who gave it to me in exchange for luring you away so he could delete the files without your catching them he told me that he always intended to give the money to charity he was afraid you'd sue to overturn the will but if you didn't keep your part of a bargain to get the taxes done in time you wouldn't sue I swore to him I'd keep that secret mainly because giving to charity seems so kind but Devin I had to tell you I love you I raced out of the house got my pistol and shot my father to death as with most murders this one went unsolved and the million went to me whereupon I decided that at least for a while more I didn't need to look for a job anyway that story uh, is is called would you stop procrastinating for a million dollars the next story is called a baggage Handler," the second to the last one I believe William is a baggage handler for diamond cruises his back is getting bad but feels he has no skills and so needs to stay at that job He resents that and the rich passengers and decides it's payback time he knows there's a gap in surveillance when disembarking passengers are picking up their luggage he had his friend james take a piece of expensive luggage that had a sweet tag s-u-i-t-e they did it a number of times and found nothing but this time they struck gold or should i say coke they opened the suitcase to find in the lining a white slab james exclaimed it must weigh 10 pounds They googled to learn that if you put a bit of it on your tongue and it's bitter and numbs your tongue it's cocaine it was then they googled to find that it's worth at least a hundred thousand dollars james said cool how should we sell it and the split's 50 50 right william thought recalling how the coke had ruined his father's lives his friends lives he said dude i can't william then called the district attorney and told all whereupon james ran out then before the cops came william called the san Francisco chronicle and told the story it was the next day's front page news that made the district attorney decide to not prosecute she thought a partly disabled baggage handler who turned in a haul of cocaine sure he stole a bag but we've not prosecuted worse and with the story being front page in the chronicle i could see the headline sfda jails disabled 100k hero while releasing violent felons when diamond cruisers saw the story they too decided it would be bad publicity to fire william So instead, they capitalized on it, excusing his mistake. We've all erred, and in light of his bad back, we've moved him from baggage handler to the cushiest job on the ship, clerk in the gift shop. And then they had their PR team send their press release to the media worldwide. Anyway, that short, short story is called A Baggage Handler. And the final one is not a short, short story. It's a short, short, true story. I Never stop to Think is the title. I didn't know it was unusual. On Saturday mornings, maybe 7 a.m., my dad woke me and 15 minutes later, we walked the one block to the Q17A bus, Rain or Shine. We got off at Jamaica Avenue and walked the two blocks to the BMT train. We exited at Elder Avenue and walked the five blocks to my dad's store, tiny store at 105 Moore Street, Brooklyn. I never stopped to think it was unusual that my dad never took a day off, no matter how bad the snow. I never stopped to think that it was unusual for my dad to have me work for him most Saturdays, even though I was just 13. I never stopped to think that it was a dangerous neighborhood. I never stopped to think that without ever complaining six days a week, he would lower the metal awning with a mechanical crank, open the padlock, pull back the sliding accordion security gate, go into the door to pull out and open the folding tables, put out the boxes of shirts and displays of sunglasses and hang jackets and suits under the awning again, no matter how cold how rainy or how snowy, and then keep running the one-man store without a break until 7 p.m. every night. I never stopped to think it was unusual that he couldn't afford a security guard, and so I had to serve, although it was just for show. He said, Martin, you just watch. If you see them start to steal something, just look at them in the eye and yell, don't try to stop them, they'll beat you up. On the seventh day, Sunday, He, my mom, my sister, and I duplicated the trip, except our destination was not the store, but the Lower East Side, where my father bought the merchandise for the store. I never stopped to think it was unusual that each of us had to carry the boxes back. Over the years, three times in the middle of the night at home, we got a phone call from the police saying that my dad's store had been arsoned. I never stopped to think about it until, soon after an arson with the store still smelling of smoke, A customer told my dad that they do it because they don't like white people let alone jews having business in their neighborhood i never stopped to think that despite my dad being a holocaust survivor who with three dozen other men escaped by digging a tunnel from a pit where he was forced to burn the jews that the nazis had killed my dad never complained never finally i stopped to think i said daddy how come you so rarely talk about the Holocaust? He stiffened, which he rarely did, and said, Martin, the Nazis took five years from my life. I won't give them one minute more. I've had the privilege of being career advisor to some of the world's most successful contributory people, as well as to some real strugglers. And the successful ones are far more likely to follow my father's next sentence. Martin, don't look back. Always take the next step forward. And that final story is a true story of my father and me called I Never Stop to Think. In any case, as always, those are my uh, uh, favorite stories of late that I've written in my book Soloists. Uh, roughly 200 short, short stories of introverts and outsiders facing a dilemma. Uh, available on Amazon, as they say. As usual, regarding this video, or if you're listening to it on a podcast, I welcome your thumbs up and accept your thumbs down. I always look forward to your comments, and especially like it if you hit the share button below, share on your social media, so that my efforts can have broader impact. And I am flattered if you hit the subscribe button and subscribe to my channel. In any event, I like to end all of this as a podcast. Uh, it will be available as a podcast. So I like to end each of my podcasts with this uh, quote, which I believe is more important now than ever. Uh, And it is, we find comfort among those who agree with us, growth among those who don't. You've been listening to How to Do Life with Dr. Marty Nemco. For comments on the show or to consult with Dr. Marty Nemco, his email address is mnemko at comcast.net. Post-production of How to Do Life by Terry Rouse. Music by Blue Dot Session. Thanks for listening.